2: I'm Charlie Arnott, CEO of the Center for Food Integrity, and I tell food industry leaders what they don't want to hear because sometimes they need to hear it.
1: And I'm Susan Schwally, president of the food and beverage practice for the MPD Group. Behaviorally speaking, I know what you had for lunch, why you had it, and what you're going to do tomorrow.
0: And I'm Kevin Ryan, founder of Malachite Strategy and Research, and I've led innovation and strategy for companies like General Mills and Amazon. And we are the three squares.
2: Dishing on the food industry. And Three Squares is fortunate to have support from General Mills. Our goals for this podcast are as simple as we are.
1: That's why we have a lot of really smart guests.
2: And we'll discuss some really cool innovations, too.
1: But most importantly, we will be insightful and fun.
2: And this week, we are speaking with John Dick, CEO of Civic Science. He's going to discuss how brands are navigating an incredibly polarized environment. John's one of the smartest guys in the room. Oh, Susan, you didn't see the cookies I received as a gift today.
1: Cookies? Oh,
2: yeah, I
1: love You get presents? I get nothing.
2: Would you like me to send this to you? No. (laughs) Yeah, where do you want to start?
1: Let's see what's on the menu.
2: These are the trends in food that we're talking about. And I'm talking about the great resignation in the food system actually being the great reckoning for people in the service sector. And that's understandable, particularly with everything everyone's gone through through COVID. But the problem is, if you're a restaurateur and you've built your business model with labor accounting for no more than 30% of your total overhead you got to rethink your entire model.
1: It's really impacted, obviously, the opening of dining rooms, right? Um, anything with a drive-through has been able to weather this pretty well. But, um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting in reaction to this, there just seems to be an uptick in a lot of companies experimenting and really looking into robotics for some of the back of the house, repetitive jobs on the food service side, but also we just, you know, saw Tyson looking into robotics for the meatpacking plant because of all the issues that they've had there. So I think there's a real interesting, um, yet again, technology reacting to the the pandemic and coming coming into play. Okay,
2: so they- but here's a, here's a great source of frustration for me. Just a personal pet fee, right? So you've got the app and you place your order, but I never want to go through the drive-thru because the line at the drive-thru goes forever. Okay. So- I can sit for 30
1: minutes. No, I know. To get
2: a cup of coffee. So I, I park. And I go in and then when the doors are locked and I can't go in, I am so (laughs) pissed off.
1: So the struggle is real. I I know. I'll pick it up. I'll get out of my car. I'll use my feet. It's okay. Yeah, maybe, but I won't name the place. I recently placed an order for 1230 pickup, packed, standing in the establishment, not ready at all. At one o'clock, they say, if you had an order that was for pickup after 1210, just get in line and reorder.
0: Well, and Charlie, too, I mean, if you think about it, I know that you, you know, you really want to go inside because you feel like you're kind of beating the system. But I mean, as, as Susan pointed out, this back of house automation is is taking, there's there's going to be a point where you can't escape it. I mean, the idea being that predictive analytics, you can, you know, when you go through the drive-through, they're scanning your car, your license plate. They know what you ordered before. They're changing the screen to kind of predict that. If you go in, you have to have a kiosk because it's, you know, it's that labor saving exactly what you said so you're not going to be able to escape it (laughs) and then you go in and there's the three
2: guys from the matrix handing you your order (laughs) as you go through
1: (laughs) Charlie, you have to mobile order it
0: ahead. I do mobile order, but
1: then if I'm going to mobile order it, why stay in the car?
0: I think the question is, though, is that exactly to Charlie's point, though, is that will the automation, is it going to be consumer customer friendly? Is it going to answer some of this? It's definitely going to answer some of the overhead cost, I suppose. I mean, the question is, is whether or not it's actually, it's really there yet. I mean, I'm still a little bit... um, Cautious of saying that, you know, it's it's really going to answer the question that a lot of these uh, food service operators. Um, you but know, I, yeah. I don't think it's just automation
2: because has anybody – does anybody do the drive-through better than Chick-fil-A? I mean the, the the speed at which they process. And it's anecdotal. It's only my experience. And I, I use all the quick service restaurants. Uh, but
0: does anybody do it faster than they do it? Probably not. They run it like a Toyota assembly line. I mean, they've got people out there, yeah. Yeah,
1: they do. And they also manage to get the staff. So, I mean, I think it's not to like replace, it's just to supplement the labor force so that they can put the people where they need to have human interaction.
2: Great point, Susan. And with that, we will close on the menu for this week. Keeping you up to date in the food industry, our table discussion with John Dick is up next.
3: At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at GeneralMills.com.
1: Charlie and Kevin, I am so excited about our guest this week, John Dick, CEO and founder of Civic Science, joining us uh, today. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great.
3: I'm doing great. I'm really glad to be here.
1: Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Look, Civic Science is just fascinating. I mean, you are getting all of this real-time polling information, and you're able to come up with some really interesting insights in different ways about consumers about a myriad of topics that we can link back and help understand. Uh, tell us about food, for instance.
3: We Our sort of ethos is that everything affects everything and everything's constantly changing. So we study everything constantly, right? Which is simple, simple but sort of um, ambitious. We... We are a survey company. I don't like that word. I wish there was a sexier way to describe it, but we just do it at a really unique scale. Um, we're doing um, upwards of millions of polls a day, and that's really kind of powered by a business model we stumbled upon that I won't kind of bore your listeners with. But but what's important about it is it allows us to ask about thousands and thousands of different things. There are about 320,000 questions in our database at latest count. And uh, the magic of technology allows us to sort of study the the space between all of those questions to find things that are uh, related that people might not expect to be related. And those relationships are what often drives um, really strong marketing decisions or business strategy decisions or just observations about the world that that are important.
1: You know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on our show today is we've been talking about how does the food and beverage industry, how do you stand for who you are without alienating the consumer. And you are so uniquely positioned to talk about this because you know exactly what is polarizing, what's not polarizing in this highly politicized world. So I just would love to kind of start off with what you see in terms of, you know, just the consumer and, and divisiveness.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much everything's polarizing, it seems, today, uh, and, and that's maybe a, a little bit hyperbolic, but not by much. Uh, it, it, we've been either because it's human nature or because the the external forces of media and social media and politics have driven us into sort of a greater stage of divisiveness. That just happens to be where we are. It's probably the thing we study more than anything else, right? Because uh, what James Carville said in what 1992, that it's the economy, stupid, right? That consumers' decisions were... Were generally driven by their views of their, their personal financial situation. Did I have a good job? Am I making good money? What am I, what's my outlook for the economy? And, and that also affected how we voted. Politics was sort of a, of a waterfall after how I felt about my personal financial situation. That seems to have changed. Um, fairly evidently in our data that people's, believe it or not, people's financial views and economic views are maybe driven more by their politics than the other way around. And so when brands think about, do I position my product around a price value or promotion or, you know, do I want to position it as a higher end brand, those things are driven maybe more now by politics than they were simply by what's the state of the economy or the state of the financial health of my my customer. And that And that's just really changed the way I think business leaders have to think about marketing today.
2: You know John, I've seen some recent research um, said sixty three percent of corporate executives agree unequivocally that companies should speak out on social issues, while thirty six percent of voters agree unequivocally that companies should speak out on social issues. So CEOs obviously have a have a much greater perception of of their influence or their need to engage. But how do we begin to navigate that? I mean, as you think about that, what what does that data tell you?
3: Well, it tells me that we've got a country that's pretty much always divided two thirds to one third on whatever question it is you might have. Right. I mean, if, if you, and, and it probably tells me that there might be some, you know um, not to get too psychological about it, but there's probably a a political bias um, along the spectrum among most of those CEOs, depending on the industries that they're in, you know, presumably they're, you know, highly educated, college educated plus, which is a proxy for lots of other socio political kinds of attitudes that people have. So that's one thing. Um, I also think that those CEOs believe that they have a, a responsibility um, beyond simply making money for their shareholders and paying their, you know, covering payroll. And, and I I mean, that's certainly admirable. How do you navigate it? I think it depends so much, again, on the brand and the category and who their customer is. But a few things that we really espouse, because our clients ask us about this all the time. First of all, I don't believe businesses should take social or political stances because they're commercially efficacious. Things like racial... Injustice and poverty and issues like that; those aren't shouldn't be platforms for brand building. You should take a position on those things because you you believe in those things and and you care about those things. And frankly, economic consequences be damned if you care about them deeply enough, right? But I think even putting sort of the high mindedness aside, I believe consumers are perceptive, uh, particularly when it comes to authenticity. And if brands and leaders take positions simply because they have some commercial gain they believe they can achieve from it, I do think the consumer can see through that. They can see through the PR-written, lawyer-approved press release that companies send out about the issue of the day. So I think we should put aside – the merits or the motives behind whether or not a company should take a stand. I think the bigger question is, how do you navigate in a world where your customers are generally polarized in a fairly binary way on one side of every issue or the other? Because brands have become some kind of a badge of our identity. They're a reflection of our politics in some way, either consciously or not. I think that's the thing that's probably harder for brands to navigate.
0: We seem to be so splintered that is it possible for a mainstream brand to have a have a, a message that really resonates along a large portion
3: of of consumers? I think it's possible. What I don't know is if somebody can start that way. I think companies like McDonald's, companies like maybe even Amazon have become so ubiquitous that they don't necessarily have to pick a side, nor can they, to maintain the market share that they have. But I think that when you're coming up and you're trying to build a brand and build a customer base it's really really hard to do that without a foundation of you know history and legacy with consumers individuals live in this tribal world today and and they're going to get a lot of the purchase decisions that they made are being made via recommendations from their friends right and for better or for worse you know over 60% of americans have unfriended somebody on facebook because of their political views i mean we've self selected ourselves into these echo chambers of people Um, who tend to align with our values. And so the the brands and things they recommend to me tend to be a filter for those values. So I think for the the company that's trying to grow fast, particularly from scratch, they're most likely going to align with one group or the other at the expense of the one they don't align with. And and, and that might be okay. I mean, there's lots of companies that are really, really big by appealing to half of the political spectrum, but that's all the further they're going to get. So is there a tentpole brand or even a tentpole media property out there? I don't, I'm afraid not. I just had a conversation with somebody about this last week where they were, we were talking about tentpole media, like TV shows or movies. Would that ever exist again? Like the MASH finale, whenever that was 40 years ago. And, and he started going on about, uh, how Squid Game was like the most viewed TV show in the world. And I said, yeah, but first of all, like only about 70% of us households have Netflix Uh, The 30% that don't primarily lean far politically right because they live in rural areas without strong broadband. You think about the nature of a show like Squid Game, it's going to appeal to a certain type of consumer. It's the exact opposite of a tent pole. It just tends to have really appealed to everybody along one side of the spectrum. And I think that's really more the world we're going to live in. That's the world that the brands have to accept. And figure out how to navigate and ultimately try to try to appeal, you know, as, as authentically as possible to the segment of consumers that live that align with their values.
0: It's interesting that you say that about Squid Game, because I've seen people on both the left and the right see something about it that it's almost like a blank slate at which people bring to, which I wonder whether or not there's something to be said there for some
3: brands as well. I th- one thing I would say to your listeners, to people in the food and beverage industry, that business leaders that have a political or social socio-cultural view on something that they care a lot about and they want to lead with that, they should because there's more to life than just making money obviously. And of course you you have shareholders and others people you're responsible to so you don't, so don't want to like die on a hill over it necessarily, but I would decouple sort of political issues from understanding the political Motivations of your customer. My political views are proxies for other things. One question we ask people right now is how concerned they are about inflation. Political conservatives or Republicans are significantly more likely today to be concerned about inflation than Democrats are. Now, a year ago, we asked a similar question about uh, tariff costs. How concerned were you about tariff costs? A year ago, those numbers were reversed. Democrats were significantly more concerned and Republicans were much less concerned. Why the difference? Any guess? Who's in office? Correct, right? So people's views and fears about a lot of issues today are generally driven by their confidence. A, who they blame for it, and B, their confidence in the political leadership to fix it. That matters because if your customer fits in one of those buckets or the other, and fear of inflation isn't just sort of an irrational worry that they have, but something that may, in fact, affect their spending, that should affect how you position your brand. Should you be talking about value? Should you be talking about coupon and promotion versus talking about sort of brand equity and things that that are maybe going to resonate more with a a less price-sensitive consumer? So that's how we would advise people to kind of factor politics into their marketing calculus isn't so much about taking political stances, but understanding how the political views of their their target customer affect their spending and and values.
1: You know, it's interesting. We're living in crazy times. And I guess what I'm saying is right now, younger folks seem to be more keyed into or concerned about certain social or environmental issues, but also we all may be facing them more. So- I think over time, brands are going to be faced with some of this from a very practical way, and they're going to have to think about that also. Like right now, you can have a little bit of a luxury to engage with some of these issues or not with your consumer. The brands may be doing things on the back end that the consumer doesn't know about and they don't talk about. And some of it may, may be things that they have to take forward because it's such a pressing issue and it's constantly going to evolve and change. And some of it may become more pressing.
3: So Gen Z, let's just call them 13 to 25, are remarkably – the word extreme sounds a bit pejorative, but they're remarkably polarized on their points of view about things. They're very, they're very definitive and very you know, binary. Uh, but I don't know necessarily if that's a generational phenomenon as much as it's a life stage phenomenon. I think young people – because they typically have a far less broad worldview. Now, maybe younger people today have a broader worldview because of social media, and they've just opened their eyes to more things. But I think by and large, they have a fairly narrow worldview, heavily dictated by their parents, heavily dictated by their small group of friends. And they tend to be unyielding in whatever... I mean, I have two teenagers. My 17-year-old daughter is absolutely unyielding in the the points of view that she has. And I don't even argue with her about them because there's nowhere to go. But I also think that as people get older and they go off to college and they experience new things that they broaden that worldview in a way that makes it a little bit potentially more moderated, I think. And so I'm I'm careful to say that we've got an entire generation of people who are going to expect binary political tribalism from brands for the rest of their lives. So I don't know if that's true. It may, this may be a generation that, 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 that does carry with going forward, but there's also, I think more of a, of a life stage thing happening now. You, you raise a different issue, though, when you talk about something like climate, which is going to affect every single man, woman, and child in the world, whether they know it now or not. And I think that is will be so pervasive and so ubiquitous that that even people right now who are aloof toward it or even entirely dismissing of it, that is not going to be true in 20 years. It will have become so prevalent that it will be you know, unignorable at that point. And I think that brands taking a position... Uh, that understands that reality is is a must.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, John, because COP26, not too far uh, in the rearview mirror, talking to some of the environmental community, they talk about the conversation was a lot about green wishing, but nobody's actually making a genuine commitment to reduce much of emissions yet. They want to buy other people's carbon, but we haven't seen the commitments to actually make substantive reductions. So it'll be fascinating to see, particularly in the food system, how that continues to unwind because what we're seeing is continued episodic Weather events create more supply chain disruption, and to your point, that's only going to be exacerbated
3: over the next 20 years. No question, the challenge that climate has, climate change or climate policy has, is that the per- at least perceived trade-offs that tend to be economic, jobs, costs of goods. Those are things that the average consumer feels so much more sensitively than they feel a weather event that happened halfway across the country. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that until those weather events start to affect more people, uh, the economic consequences of climate policies are going to win out over the the climate issues. You know, uh, one thing I, I watch really closely and I believe is likely to be the a turning point in climate urgency is coastal erosion in places like Florida. If you happen to take a boat along the coast of Florida, you see lots of boats flying flags with one particular political orientation, right? Those are the, generally the people who live along the coast in Florida, who also happen to be the people who are maybe a little bit more dismissive about the issues of climate change. But when, when their boats start rising above their docks when it doesn't rain, or when their property or insurance costs start to rise because their their land is is Flowing into the Gulf now, the economic realities actually become real. It's really about the fact that I can't sell the house that I spent three million dollars on because it's not worth that anymore, or my insurance premiums have tripled. You know those those are the t- kinds of tipping points I think we will expect to see in climate. It's unfortunate. It's going to take it probably those things to happen, but it's going to happen.
1: You know, I just listened to your um, podcast, which, by the way, dumbest guy in the room, whatever, John. But you had um, Morgan. Flatley, CMO of McDonald's on recently. Yes, I did. She's wonderful. Yeah, she was great. And I loved the fact that in your data, you see that McDonald's is a brand that's not polarized. It has broad appeal, right? And, And you talked about that with her just How it really is democratic with a small d and it's inclusive and everybody gets the same experience and it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous in the country in terms of location and and it's a community and all these things and how they're able to really continue to to do that and not having to take stands. But I'm, I'm not trying to pick on McDonald's because of some of the environmental issues coming down the line and their size. Like, how are they going to navigate that? And at what point are they going to have to deal with that down the line? It's just going to continue to be a fascinating space for so many industries to navigate. Well,
3: my hope for a a brand like McDonald's, and they're a unicorn, you know, their, their brand equity with consumers predates this era of political tribalism that we live in today. And while, yeah, that that creates a bit of a minefield for them to navigate because if they they, they can't take particularly controversial positions about things at the risk of alienating one side or the other. But I would say the more positive is that it gives them an opportunity to be a real force for change in these areas, you know? When McDonald's does speak out about racial injustice, that's a big deal because it's saying this is important enough to us to potentially risk, you know, maybe offending a customer or two. That's the kind of thing that actually makes a change because then it's not just about— Oh, here's another company kind of leaning into whatever political side of the spectrum they're on. But they they actually believe this issue is so important, even potentially at the own risk of their profits, to do something about it. It's potentially precarious and a lot of pressure on them. I think it's also really exciting because they're one of the few companies that can really maybe impact change.
2: Yeah, it's also a great place to talk about, Susan, you mentioned it earlier, the difference between what companies decide to do from a marketing perspective and what do they do back of house. McDonald's is one of the catalysts for the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, and they've been very public in their position that their goal is to change beef production practices globally. And they've taken very active and aggressive action on that, but they don't market it right? It's something that they're doing with their suppliers and others because they know absolutely that having a sustainable beef supply, you cannot run a burger joint if you don't have beef. And so they've got to continue to have that, but they're doing that operationally. They're not doing it and promoting it from a marketing perspective.
1: Yeah. Simple economics at the end of the day, right? Always a, a great motivator.
3: Well, that's partly a g- economic, but I would say it's probably a lot more existential than it is just simple e- econ- <laughs> economics.
1: You're going to exist, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: And, you know, I, I hadn't thought about you know, why they do or do not choose to market around that, I don't know. Maybe because they know it's just gonna be really hard to get it done and they don't wanna shine a spotlight on it until they feel like they're making a lot of really good progress toward an end because as soon as you as soon as you shine a spotlight on something you're working on, you become become accountable to 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 finish it, right? And what they're trying to solve is a really, really hard problem, you know.
1: Or maybe they don't think that their consumers kind of want to be bothered with it. I mean, if you think about the experience of McDonald's or like an Oreo, sometimes you just want something that you love or crave.
3: Oh, completely. Yeah. But I do think that the impending potential risk of massive global beef shortages and the impact that can have on price and all of that, that's something a consumer is going to care about. It just feels really far off on the horizon. and And, you know, and maybe there's just no benefit to sort of stoking that fear right now because the average consumer doesn't realize that 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 sort of cliff is hanging out there, and so what's the what's the what's the point in getting people fearful about something that they can't get their heads around or do anything about yet anyway? Yeah,
1: I agree. I mean, it's what's on the gas pump right now, what right. not the threat of what may happen to my burger ten years from now,
3: or what they don't want is some widespread movement to cut back on beef consumption because <laughs> that's that <laughs> right. you know. So that that's the other that's the other the double edged sword that they have to deal with.
0: Is it also potentially not wanting to even get into the same argument uh, that Chipotle in a sense is kind of stoking. Chipotle, one of their big conversations right now is around sustainability and all that kind of stuff.
3: And I don't know. Yeah. But Ch- Chipotle kind of the, the cautionary tale, I think, in some ways. And, and I don't know the company well enough or the leadership to question their motives at all. So I don't want to I want to be careful in, in saying this. But, you know, they, they've made that sort of story about sustainability a huge forward facing part of their brand. And whether it was by design or by consequence, they've attracted a particular type of consumer who who believed that brand promise. But look what happened to them, whatever, seven, eight years ago when they tripped on themselves and found out they, they actually had, I forget what it was, it was about the pork and it took them years to dig back out of that hole. Because once you take something of a high-minded point of view about these things and you turn out to actually... Uh, Compromise, or maybe weren't as authentic as you led on to believe, or you know, got your cu- caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Whatever happened, whether it was a mistake or whether it was some you know nefarious thing, I have no idea. When you build that level of trust with a consumer and you violate it, that's a really hard thing to get back. You know, I think again for a, a company like McDonald's that's got you know the entire U.S. Census as its customer base to 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 take a strong position when you might actually be at risk of violating it at some point in the future. That's you can't do that. You better you better make sure your house is in order before you start espousing virtues like that.
0: Yeah, which I think goes right back to the conversation we had at the beginning about how does a, a mainstream brand, you know, ride that line? The, the idea that McDonald's is maybe just not wanting to get into that part, and what Chipotle, um, you know, ended up with, and and how they've had to dig back out.
3: I, I would just say, as a, you know, from the other end of the spectrum, literally and figuratively, is you've got a company like Chick fil A. Mm who doesn't necessarily market as much around its values per se Uh, it's more I would say subdued, but widely known. I mean, the reason they close on Sundays and sort of, you know, the highly visible kind of donations they've made to certain types of charities. I mean, they don't market around it or lean on that very hard, but they, you know, there are definitely consumers who, who go the extra mile to learn a bit about a brand's politics that won't step foot in a Chick-fil-A for those reasons, you know? And look, more power to them if those are issues and virtues they believe in deeply and the company's been wildly successful. So you can have values as a brand and find lots of ways to support them uh, without making it a huge forward-facing part of your marketing. Now, smart, astute consumers will will dig in and figure out sort of what you actually stand for, and you may suffer consequences for that, or you may attract a particular type of customer for doing that. There's a couple different ways to go about doing it today. Uh, I think just sort of being milk toast, and hoping that everybody likes shoes probably not the answer.
1: Well, I would I would argue too with Chick-fil-A. There's people who are very aware of um kind of their their values uh and they don't share the same value, but they respect them for having that subdued approach and for their opinion. Completely. And they say I want a Chick-fil-A because it's a great it's a great sandwich, right? Yep. Yep. All different ways to get at it.
3: Yeah. If you make a really, really, really good product, people are going to care less and less and less about your politics. I think that might be a lesson (laughs) we learned from
1: there. John, thank you so much for joining with us uh, today. I just want to say to all our listeners, uh, check out Civic Science. Absolutely fascinating. And check out John's podcast, uh, The Dumbest Guy in the Room. Clearly not. And John, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Really glad to be here. Kudos for having these conversations and really elevating the discussion for your listeners and the companies and brands and business leaders out there in, in, in the food and beverage industry, because these issues are only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's going to be harder and harder and harder for these companies to navigate it. So I'd love to come back sometime uh, to talk about the next wave of big things that will be inevitably down the road, you know, and later in next 2022 or beyond. So um, thanks again for having me and and uh, and good luck with everything.
1: Thanks, John.
2: Great conversation with John. He's always so insightful. A couple of key points that, that he raised that I think are worthy of, of some additional discussion. Is the position you're taking authentic to the brand? Is it, is it consistent with your values and who you are as an organization? Or is it something where you're simply responding to the headline of the day? And I think that jumping from headline to headline is a very, very dangerous place to be. And whether it's your customers or your employees or other stakeholders, they'll see through that pretty quickly.
1: It has to be something that comes, I think, from the leadership down through the organization. And everyone has to be walking the walk and talking the talk.
2: Um, You know, the McDonald's Global Roundtable on Sustainable Beef is is a great example. They're very aggressive in, in messaging to their supply chain about the expectations and the changes they expect, but they're not consumer-facing with that conversation. And so they've chosen for
0: a specific group of stakeholders, this is how we're going to message, and for others, we're not. One of the things I thought was really interesting that John said was his whole conversation around Gen Z and about how they have strong opinions and whether or not that's just a, a life stage thing versus a generation thing. You know, if I look back at when I was the age that Gen Z is now, I think I had just a strong opinion. I did not have a phone that allowed me to broadcast that strong opinion. And I almost feel like that's what makes companies jump from topic to topic is because so many folks have that, um, you know, bullhorn that they can use to say these strong opinions and then switch to a different opinion. And I think you're seeing brands learn how to navigate that you know, waves of consumer opinion, you know, they've never seen before. And
1: it's also kind of like really live it if you're going to do this. Like you can't, you can't be everything to everyone in in kind of the ESG space. Be who
0: your brand is. And as you said, Susan, stay on that as you go forward.
1: You know, as the market researcher, there is a very distinct break that occurred with the millennials in food and beverage. And remember, gosh, it seems like a lifetime. It was a lifetime ago, the Great Recession and the rise of the small brand, a lot of which are built on some of these ESG issues. You know, interest in in food functionality, that's a millennial shift. They return to more of the store perimeter and fresh. And you see that very, very clearly in the data. So I love John's point that um, you can't you can't stereotype broad swaths of people by an entire generation. but there is something inherently different when it comes to food and beverage in general, about millennials and Gen Z coming behind that I think makes them a little more keyed into some of these issues that I think companies have to be very aware of because I do believe that will carry through, as they age, it's gonna be really interesting to watch.
2: All right, let's check our Three Squares inbox.
1: This is our first episode, so...
2: Fair enough. (laughs) We prefer not to pretend in the future, so we'd like you to send us a voice memo or email with your food mystery. And understand Kevin is your mystery solver. That's me. He has a PhD in food science. He wrote a cookbook when he was 12. Pretty darn amazing.
1: He is amazing. So
2: you can send your food mystery, your question to Three Squares Mail. That's the number squaresmail, M-A-I-L, not M-A-L-E, at gmail.com. And your question may be on a future episode. There's a high likelihood because we don't have one yet. (laughs) All right. So this week we are learning about banana flavoring, talking with a friend the other day who loves banana flavored snacks. I may be one of those, particularly Laffy Taffy. Hold on. And a Circus Peanuts. You
1: like banana flavor?
2: I like banana-flavored Laffy Taffy. I'm
1: not sure we can do this podcast together. (laughs) you want to talk about polarizing things? This
2: is polarizing. But Kevin, in the conversation, you said it doesn't actually taste
0: like bananas. Well, it actually does taste like bananas because it's a different banana. So the the strange thing is everyone thinks like there's only one banana. And it's true. There really is kind of like one banana that we know today. It's called the Cavendish banana. It's the, the banana that you get at any grocery store. However... There were bananas less than a hundred years ago. It was a completely different banana. It was called the Grosse Michel banana. And uh, here's the fun fact, because all bananas are basically clones of one another, they're very susceptible to blight. And so the Grosse Michel was one of those uh, ones that were blighted and uh, they pretty much went away. They still kind of exist, but the Cavendish is the one we know today. But the Grosse Michel from years ago had a very different taste. It still tastes like banana, but it had a very different taste. So when they were making banana flavoring, they were going off of this other banana. Did not know that. And now that that one's not around, you're like, wait a minute, it doesn't taste like banana. Well, it does. It tastes like the other banana. So,
2: but there's also that taste when a banana's kind of gone a little bit bad. Yes. Like if banana pudding's been sitting for two or three days, it tastes more like Laffy Taffy or circus peanuts. Why is that?
0: That's because the isoamyl acetate, the flavoring that you- that you know, as like circus peanuts and stuff like that, it just becomes more concentrated, it becomes stronger. That was my first guess that it was the <laughs> amyl isol acetate. <laughs> the acetate, yeah.
1: I, I have questions. Mm-hmm. Why has the industry not updated faux banana flavoring?
0: They, they may call it like a banana two. <laughs> Or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it would be like new banana or something, or they would call it, maybe they would call it like a special like uh, banana royale or something like that. They would have a new name. I don't think you would ever get rid of the old flavor. Of, banana 2, the sequel, because the peel's coming
1: back. Like non-barf banana? I, you know, that's a good
0: question. I mean, I think they could. Um, but I think it's a flavor that people kind of like. It's the exact same reason that why, when I was a kid- Like two people like? No, people actually, you grow to like that kind of stuff. For example, my sister, when I was younger and I would make like, I would bake cakes and all this kind of stuff, I would use real vanilla beans. And she used to always tell me, Kevin, I don't, this doesn't taste right. I don't know if something's up with this. And I found out that she really likes artificial vanilla. Familiarity, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a different flavor to it. And it, the same thing with imitation vanilla. There is an aspect of it that's vanilla. It just doesn't have the complexity. But there may be a, a future uh, for having some of these, you know, more complex flavors.
1: Oh, help us all. <laughs> if you have questions or comments. Or complaints. Or complaints about Kevin, here's our mailbox.
2: That's right, Susan. Write to three squares Mail at gmail.com and we will get to as many of your questions as we possibly can.
1: And your question may get featured in a future episode.
2: All right, let's check the label. Has this podcast expired? It is time for us to go. Thanks so much to our guest this week, John Dick. Fabulous as always. And thanks again to General Mills for their support of this podcast. Three Squares is created and hosted by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beasing and Jason Jackson at Sounded Brands. And thanks to you for listening. Please hit the free subscribe button for more episodes and leave us a rating and review unless it's bad, and then I hope you hit the wrong button. Until next time, keep your plate clean and your glass full. We will see you soon on Three Squares.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.